0: Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 7. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. Feel free to grab one of those. Find your way to Mark chapter 7, to the passage our friend John read for us a few moments ago. If you do not have a Bible, know that we have some on the table in the foyer for you to grab on your way out. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the scriptures. As you're finding your way into Mark chapter 7, I'm going to voice one more prayer for us, and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, would you give us ears to hear so that our hearts might receive what you have for us this evening. I pray that our hearts would respond appropriately to the word that you uh, have saw fit for us to study together this evening. I pray Holy Spirit calls your word to come alive in Jesus' name, amen. You know, in 2014, Sports Illustrated published an article called The Education of Jabari Parker. At the time, Jabari Parker was getting ready to be uh, a top pick in the NBA draft. That year, he went number two overall. He was an incredible basketball talent. Uh, prior to that moment, he spent one year playing uh, under Mike, under Coach Mike Chizetsky, otherwise known as Coach K, a lot easier to say. Uh, Coach K at Duke University, and he played for Coach K. And in this article, there's a story about how Coach K invested in Jabari's development as a player there was a moment where Jabari received a text message from one of the assistants saying that coach K wanted to see him in the film room and so Jabari showed up he walked in and the article says this it says one day after he received this text Jabari entered and found coach K sitting high above him in the top row coach K said come in and have a seat you think you're in trouble don't you Parker said, yeah, he said, well, this is not one of those meetings, and they then sat down side by side and, began and watched a video of a recent scrimmage they had, and as they were watching the video of this scrimmage, Coach K hit pause, and he told Jabari, hey, look at your feet, they're in the wrong position. Parker nodded, and then Coach K stood up and, and demonstrated the correct stance, correct stance. Moments later, uh, Coach K stopped the tape again. He said, Look at your hands. They're not ready. And Parker said, Yeah, I got to change that. On the next sequence, Coach K zeroed in on Parker's hips. And he said, Your hips are turned in the wrong direction. And then Coach K went on to explain. He said, This is about precision and doing physical things to create better habits. Coach K said, "It's what the guys I coach in the summer do." And then he calls out Kobe and LeBron and Kevin Durant. He said, "Those guys are precise." After an hour of Coach K uh, of watching film with Coach K, Coach K turned it off. And then Jabari told him, "I, "I never realized I looked that bad." And Coach K took that moment to lean in close and to look Parker in the eyes. And then he said, he said these words. He said, "It's not personal." It's the truth. It's not personal. It's the truth. Now, you would think Jabari would be discouraged. He'd be deflated after seeing all that is wrong with his game, after going through this film in detail with Coach K, the guy who recruited him and brought him onto the team, and and now he's being told about all the things he's doing wrong, and it's not a very encouraging moment, so you would think, but the article would go on to say that Parker stood up and he left the theater energized. How are you energized after a moment like that? Well, I think you're energized after a moment like that because truth has a way of liberating us, even if it's a hard truth. Truth has a way of energizing us, even if it's a difficult truth. And so when we consider those words, it's not personal, it's the truth. There were some who would say that Coach K may have been too harsh or excessively critical. I believe Coach K was serving his player's development in the best way that he could. He was serving Jabari with an honest and accurate evaluation of his play. It was an example of good coaching. It was a way to make Jabari a stronger player. It's not personal, it's the truth. And as we hold on to those words and we slide into this story here in Mark chapter 7, understand that Mark is inviting us into a conversation that Jesus has with a woman that contains one of the most shocking statements Jesus ever uttered. It's a moment where Jesus leans in close to this this woman and looks her in the eyes and says, in essence, it's not personal, it's the truth. Because he tells her some things that aren't flattering. He tells her some things that, that aren't initially encouraging. But what you find in this story, in the exchange between Jesus and the woman in this passage What you find here, it was intended to energize her, and by extension, it was intended to energize us by provoking our faith in the surplus of God's grace. I think that's what you have going down here. Beginning in verse 24, the story begins with, it tells us that Jesus went to a certain place. It says in verse 24 that Jesus arose one day and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now, as you've journeyed through the book of Mark with us over the past, well, since January, you know that Jesus has been busy. He's been executing and engaging a ministry of word and wonder, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. But not only has he been proclaiming the gospel, he's been performing miracles and wonders designed to reveal the nature of God's kingdom, showing the world what life in his kingdom will be be like. Every time he forgives sins, every time he heals the sick, every time he feeds the hungry, every time he casts out demons, he's saying this is what life in my kingdom is and ultimately will be like. That there's a coming a day when God's kingdom will be consummated in the world, a new heaven and a new earth where none of the stuff that defiles and disrupts our lives now will be a part of. And Jesus has been executing this ministry, but you know as well as I do that Jesus has been executing this ministry in the region of Galilee and Capernaum. That is a predominantly Jewish territory. The Jews are in charge there. They are the predominant ethnic group in that region. But he's been so busy. He's been engaging this ministry so faithfully and with so much energy and so much zeal. He is the suffering servant. He's been doing this work. Now he wants a break. So there's a sense in which he retreats, he goes somewhere else hoping that maybe he can get some rest. Taking his disciples far away from Galilee, far away from the Sea of Galilee and the region that he's been ministering in, he goes to Tyre and Sidon, a place that's about 50 miles northwest of Galilee. It's a place that if you were to look at a map today, it would represent Lebanon and Syria. That's the region he's going into for this retreat. I believe he's going to take a break. To, he's wanting to rest. This is why he goes into the house and he wants to stay hidden there. It doesn't work out for him, but that's what he, I think, wants when he goes to this place. And You consider that shift. You consider Jesus leaving Galilee, going to Tyre and Sidon. It, we cannot overlook and overestimate the significance of where Jesus goes for his retreat. You see, Tyre and Sidon represented an area, a region, a territory that... Ordinary Jewish people considered to be unclean. It was a region that was considered to be defiled. It was a region full of Israel's, according to one Jewish historian named Josephus, considered to be Israel's most bitterest enemies. You see, the region of Tyre and Sidon wasn't a Jewish territory. It was a predominantly Gentile territory. It was a non-Jewish region. And it contained and housed and was home to people who in the second century BC actually went to war against the Jewish people, fought against the Jews in what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. So this is a, a group, a region full of people who do not like the Jews very much, full of people who the Jews do not like very much. Uh, their bitterest enemies, so to speak. But then you also step back and you look even deeper into the history of Israel and you recognize that all throughout the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon were places full of people who were oftentimes targeted by God's judgment people that did not worship God uh, as he revealed himself to to and through the nation of Israel, the people who who introduced other gods to the nation of Israel, Jezebel, if you've heard that name, she was from Tyre, and she entered Israel, and she hooked up with Ahab, and she's responsible in large part for introducing Baal worship to the people of Israel, idolatry, the very stuff that got Israel kicked out of their land during the Babylonian exile. So this is a region that the Israelites considered to be unclean. It was a region the Israelites considered to be uncouth. It was a region the Israelites considered to be defiled and full of idolatry. It was a region most ordinary Jewish people did not want did not want anything to do with. And you have to hold on to that because this is... The region that Jesus goes to for this vacation is why I think Mark places this story so strategically here in this moment. Because over the past two weeks, we've seen in verses 1 through 23 of chapter 7, Jesus has been talking about what constitutes cleanliness in God's eyes. And he's trying to get people to think deeper about what it means to be defiled or unclean. And as we said last week, that human defilement, our uncleanness, has nothing to do with external factors. It has everything to do with what's dwelling within us. It's what Jesus describes as sin in verses 21 through 23. And so he's had this conversation about clean and unclean, and then Jesus goes, or Mark positions this story here, where Jesus goes to an unclean place full of unclean people. And it says that Jesus wanted to remain hidden, but his desire to be hidden uh, didn't work because uh, people knew they caught wind of Jesus and his disciples traveling through that region. Word started to spread, and you wonder, well, how did that happen? Well, you look back to to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and there's this moment where Jesus is communicating and he's performing miracles, healing the sick, serving this large multitude of people. Then in verse 8 of chapter 3, it tells us that there are representatives from Tyre and Sidon who were present there. Now, the Jewish people didn't ordinarily go in their direction, but they would occasionally come then to the Jewish direction. And so there were representatives from Tyre and Sidon present in Jesus' public ministry, so, when they could, so his reputation preceded him. And when this desperate mother realizes that Jesus is near, she goes to him because she's in a situation that she cannot handle And so you pick up in verse 25 and it says this, it says, but immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. This desperate mother comes and falls at Jesus' feet, but then Mark in verse 26 tells us more about who this woman is describes her in categories that would have qualified her as being an unclean person in Jewish eyes. Check it out in verse 26. It says, now the woman was a Gentile. That means she was a non-Jew. And the Jewish people during this day viewed Gentiles, those who were of an ethnicity other than Jewish, they were considered uh, unclean, and they were rules and regulations that governed how they were to interact with one another. Mark tells us right off the bat that this was a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman. But then he goes on and describes her further. He says that this was a Syrophoenician by birth. This means this was a woman who was Hellenized. She was Greek. She was Highly influenced by the Greek culture, therefore, most likely, all the gods of the Greek world were a part of her worldview. But apparently, that the worship system of, of the Greek world and the Greek religions weren't serving her well because when she catches wind of the Jewish Messiah in vicinity, she goes to him for help. But she is a Syrophoenician. She has been Hellenized, so to speak. She represented Greek culture, the very thing that many Jewish people wanted to kind of purge out of the influence of their culture. They wanted Judaism to be the top dog culture in Israel. And so she represented everything that kind of threatened their existence, threatened their uh, livelihood. All of this pointing to the fact that she, or affirming this idea that she was an unclean person from an unclean place. If you read the story of this event in Matthew's gospel, a parallel account, Matthew gives us a little more detail than what Mark provides here. And he tells us that this woman was actually a Canaanite. That means that she was a part of the people that God wanted to wipe from the earth in the Old Testament. And so here she shows up in the gospel. She's living in Tyre and Sidon and she's a part of the the Canaanites who were Israel's uh, bitterest enemies in the Old Testament. And She represents a remnant of a cursed race, of a cursed people. This was a woman who was was about as far from the God of Israel as you could possibly get. But yet she comes to Jesus, and Matthew tells us that she actually ascribes to Jesus a messianic title. When she gets to him, she says, Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And she refers to him that way as she falls at his feet, and you're wondering what in the world would have driven this woman who was so far from the God of Israel to Jesus' feet, and well after, out of all the things that you take into consideration, she's a Gentile, she's a Syrophoenician, she's a Canaanite woman, all of those factors, you have to remember that she's a mom. This was a mom, and her mama bear is riled up because of her daughter's situation, she is a mom, and as a mom, she is the, the world's advocate for her kid. Those of you who are moms know this to be true. You are your kids' greatest advocates. And if your kids are ever in a situation that is harmful to them or dangerous for them, you're going to advocate for their deliverance. You're going to do whatever it takes to help them, to serve them, to see them through it. This is what's driving her to the feet of the Jewish Messiah. Her worldview isn't working. She's under all this pressure. So she comes to Jesus. She falls at his feet and saying, Jesus, will you help me? And she's showing no regard and no respect for Jewish customs or what was appropriate for how a woman, much less a Gentile woman, was to approach a Jewish rabbi such as Jesus. And so she falls at his feet, and it's an interesting contrast when you consider this moment, this dramatic picture, and you contrast it with another moment that happened in Mark chapter 5. The only other time you see someone falling at the feet of Jesus was another parent, a guy by the name of Jairus, and his kid was in trouble, and he wanted Jesus' help, and he fell before Jesus, asking Jesus to intervene, asking Jesus to bring deliverance, to bring healing, to help him and his kid, and And you just contrast those for a moment. You take Jairus, this religious ruler of the synagogue, a Jewish man, a respected leader. Then you take this Canaanite, Gentile, Syrophoenician woman, polar opposites, but yet both are driven by their circumstances to the feet of Jesus. And what that reminds you and I this morning, what that reminds us and what that encourages us to consider is that the fears and the frustrations of life in a fallen world affect everyone. Whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are religious or irreligious, it doesn't really matter what your cultural identity is. It doesn't really matter what your ethnic identity is. At some point in time, the pressures of life in a fallen world is going to grow so intense, you're going to realize you don't have the resources to overcome them. And when you realize that you do not have the resources to overcome life in a fallen world, what are you going to do? My prayer for you is that you will do as Jairus did. You will do as this woman did. When you find yourself realizing you do not have the resources to handle life in a fallen world, you will then run and fall at the feet of Jesus. You will seek help from the only one who can give it. And when you and I begin to see this contrast, it should soften our hearts towards one another in our relationships, and it should soften our hearts towards those around us and the people in our lives who are far from the God of the gospel. We should realize that what sets us apart has nothing to do with our ability to handle life. What sets us apart is the faith we're putting in Jesus and the grace he has shown us. Other than that, we are hopeless and helpless apart from him. And so when we look out upon a needy world and we see people in our lives who are having a hard time handling life in a fallen world, what do we do? Well, we do not stand above them, looking down upon them, wondering, well, they need to get their act together. What we do is we come under them. We come beside them. We identify with them. It's called solidarity. It's called compassion. It's called sympathy, empathy. That's what we do when we recognize who we are and our limitations as it relates to life in a fallen world. So you consider this contrast between this Gentile woman and Jairus, this religious leader. Both of them respond to Jesus the same way. To put it into a cliche, the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. We're all equal when it comes to grace. Grace makes us all equal before or in the eyes of God. And we all have access to God through Jesus regardless of our Whatever differences we may have in this world. And so fears and frustrations have, have taken up, taken over this woman's home. Her daughter is, has an unclean spirit who is tormenting her, who's tyrannizing her. She comes to Jesus, falls at his feet, and begs him for help. And then here's where the money is in this passage. Verses 27 and 28. This is the crux of it. This is the heart of this story. Because when she gets to Jesus and she falls at his feet, Asking for help, Jesus does not respond to her the way you and I would expect him to. In fact, he says something to her that might leave us scratching our heads. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? It's a statement that is is one of the most shocking statements Jesus ever makes in the gospel. This is what he says in verse 27. He says to the woman, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Throw it to the dogs. In that analogy, Jesus is referring to that woman and her daughter, this demon-possessed daughter. He's referring to them as dogs. That's the connection. That's the analogy. That's the the link between what Jesus is saying in this woman's situation. So you hear that and what are you what are you doing, Jesus? That doesn't sound kind. That doesn't sound compassionate. That sounds calloused. But then at the same time, we hear that word, this description of her being a dog. And I know that we live in Seattle and that we are a culture that loves dogs. So some of us might miss the offense of this statement. We might hear that statement as a compliment. I mean, our coffee shops have doggy treats at the counter. Come, bring your pets, bring your dogs in here. We love your dogs. Let them sit at the table with you. Our dogs are equal here in this city. We, we, our, taxpayer, our our tax money goes to providing exclusive parks for dogs. That's the culture we live in. So if we're not careful, we'll impose that upon this text and we'll miss the offense of Jesus' words. But Jesus here, when he uses that metaphor, he's not speaking from a Seattle perspective, he's speaking from a first century Jewish perspective. And in the first century Jewish world, dogs were not clean animals. Dogs were not typically pets. Dogs were scavengers. Dogs ran the streets. Dogs feasted on dead animals and dead carcasses and, and other dead things in the, in the region and in the world. Whatever they could find, they would eat. And so dogs were unclean. And oftentimes, the Jewish people in the first century referred to Gentiles like this woman as dog, as an unclean person. Now, there are some scholars who want to kind of soften Jesus' metaphor, soften this image. And they say, well, well they, they point out rightly that Jesus uses a word for dog that, that isn't the common term for dog. It's more like puppy. Uh, something kind of cute. And, and it may very well be, he, he does use a word that could be translated puppy or little dog or something with a little curb to the edge to it. But even if you go that way with what Jesus is saying here, you have to recognize that Jesus is making a distinction between the children of Israel and Gentile people. He's drawing a distinction between the children in, this, in his words and the dog in his statement. Now, to understand what's going on there, as you hear those words, this distinction between the children eating bread from the table and the dogs, you you have to remember, you have to remember what Jesus says earlier in this gospel, Mark chapter 4, verse 11. And when we take into consideration what he teaches in chapter 4, we're going to find that Jesus isn't being calloused here. He's not being purely calloused. He's actually being calculated and he's speaking to this woman in a very similar way where he speaks to his disciples. He's treating her like he's been treating everyone in Galilee. And here's what I mean by that. In chapter 4, verse 11, turn back in your Bibles, you'll see this statement where Jesus is talking about his teaching. And at the beginning of this, um, at the beginning of this, In chapter 2 of chapter 4, it says Jesus was teaching them many things, and he was teaching them in parables, right? He was teaching the people in parables. And then you drop down to verse 11. He's got his disciples, and he's explaining why he teaches in parables. And this is what he says, verse 11. He says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. He's saying, I'm teaching in parables, and The people who are able to understand what I'm saying, those are the insiders, and the people who can't understand what I'm saying, those are the true outsiders. Remember that a parable is a lot like looking at a stained glass window. From the outside, a stained glass looks dull and lifeless. There's no beauty to it. In order to see its glory, you have to get in. You have to go into the cathedral and look at it from a different perspective, Well, this is how Jesus' parables function. To outsiders, they are dull. They are lifeless. They are confusing. But you get inside. You you step into uh, the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus, and you begin to see the point and the purpose of the parables. Their beauty begins to shine through. And so what I think Jesus is doing in chapter 7, he's speaking to this woman in a parable. He's communicating the secrets of the kingdom of God with this analogy of how uh, it is not right for him to take food from the children's table in this moment and give it to the dogs. And the reason for that is because the kingdom of God comes in phases. The kingdom of God comes in stages. The kingdom of God appeared in the person of Jesus, but Jesus' ministry was largely confined to the people of Israel. So much so that in Matthew chapter, 15, Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus would tell this woman before sharing this parable, he would tell her, I have come, I was, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he, the Jewish Messiah came to the people of Israel because he was the one who would fulfill the scriptures and the promises that were given to Israel specifically in the old covenant. And until he fulfills those promises, he... he colors the pictures of the sacrificial system and the purification laws until he colors the pictures with his life and his death and his resurrection, the message of the gospel cannot really go beyond Israel in a discernible or intelligible way. This is why in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes But then he makes that curious statement. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. There's a sequence here. There's a sequence to how God brings his kingdom into the world. It starts with Israel and then it flows from there. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, is undoubtedly a Jewish Messiah. But the blessing he brings through his life and his death and his resurrection is a blessing that is made available to all the peoples of the world. This is what the woman is queuing in on in this moment. She's understanding the parable. She's recognizing that there is a day when God's blessing would flow to her and to others like her. But she knows that that day is coming, but still she says, but even now, surely there's enough grace in you that can spill over that I can eat from in this moment and in this specific time. And you begin to catch this idea that that this woman is picking up what Jesus is putting down. She's looking at Jesus from the inside. She's hearing the parable. She knows that God's kingdom will ultimately be a multi-ethnic kingdom. It will be a kingdom where there is a remnant of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue who are rallying around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him with full access and full joy and full glory. There's a day coming when that reality is brought to bear in the world. Until then, what do we do? Until then, we trust God's plans and his purposes until then. And so this woman, and rather than hearing what could have been taken as an insult, she heard a promise in it. She should have been insulted that Jesus referred to her as a dog, but she doesn't camp out on that. She doesn't hear the insult, she hears the promise because she's revealing that this woman, even more than the disciples, this woman is an insider. Because what ultimately brings a person into the kingdom of God isn't their flesh. It isn't anything that has to do with an external criteria or qualification what brings a person into the kingdom of God is faith and you see this woman's faith she's hearing the parable looking at it from the inside and she's trusting what Jesus is saying picking up what he's putting down a guy by the name of James Edwards put this eloquently he cued in on this and I think he describes this scene better than I can and this is what he says He says, this woman appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does, that her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency and surplus of Jesus. His provision for the disciples and Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. What an irony. Jesus seeks desperately to teach his chosen disciples, yet they are dull and uncomprehending. Jesus is reluctant to even speak to a walk-on pagan woman. In Matthew's account, he doesn't speak immediately. He ignores her for a moment, really raising the tension of the story. But then he goes on to say this. But after one sentence, this woman understands Jesus' mission and receives his unambiguous commendation. How is this possible? Well, the answer is that the woman is the first person in Mark to hear and to understand a parable of Jesus. That she answers Jesus from within the parable. That is, in the terms by which Jesus addressed her, indicates that she is the first person in the gospel to hear the word of Jesus to her. She's the first person who gets it. And Jesus would respond to her getting it. You hear her response in verse 28. This is how she shows that she gets it. She answers Jesus, not with a protest, but with submission. She doesn't push back against what Jesus just said about her. She presses in, not hearing the insult, but ultimately hearing the promise. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Surely even now there's a, there's a scrap of grace available for me. And then in Matthew's account, Jesus would say, "O oh woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And immediately her daughter was healed. So that when she returned home, she did not walk into a home that had been turned upside down by a demonized girl. She walks in and she finds her daughter at rest, sleeping in the bed. Because Jesus just flipped the script on the fallen condition that was befalling that home. This is the instance, but it was all tied to her faith, which is why Jesus would tell her, again in Matthew, great is your faith. So you find here a picture of faith in an unlikely place by an unlikely person, and that extends hope. It provokes faith out of us so that we, might too, might trust in the same Jesus she's trusting in in this moment. But what is it about her faith that Jesus affirms? Why does Jesus... Think her faith is so great. I would offer two thoughts for you tonight to consider about the nature of faith. If you're going to talk about putting your faith in Jesus, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, there is a a type of faith in you that is twofold. And you see both of these folds in this woman's response to Jesus and how she handles this word that came to her in verse 27. The first thing you see about her faith is that in faith, she actually agrees with God's, with Jesus' assessment of her. This is what she does at the beginning of verse 27, verse 28. She says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. She agrees what Jesus, with what Jesus just said, even if what Jesus said wasn't very flattering. It wasn't personal, but it was truthful. Jesus is critiquing her, showing her uh, her need for the Messiah, Because ultimately, faith agrees with God's assessment of the human condition. You see, faith in Jesus, the type of faith that brings us into the kingdom of God, is a type of faith that recognizes our need for a savior. It's a type of faith that says, yes, Lord, I agree with you and your assessment of me. And that's significant because earlier, Jesus diagnosed our condition I don't know how you responded to that word last week, but Jesus diagnosed the human condition in verses twenty-seven, verses twenty-one and twenty-two of last week's passage. You look back up at that moment; he's describing the human heart, saying, "This is what defiles a person." And we said that this passage actually finds every heart in its crosshairs due to the, lit- the litany of manifestations of sin that Jesus lays out. You check it out again in verse twenty-one. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. They render us unclean. They separate us from the creator of the universe. Sin is a big deal. And if you're going to put your faith in Jesus, saving faith, The type of faith that's worthy of the gospel is a faith that says, God, I agree with what you have to say about me, even if what you say about me isn't all that impressive. Even if that what you say about me is somewhat offensive. Even if what you say about me ruffles my feathers. Even if you tell me that there's nothing good in me that could warrant a standing with you. Even if you tell me that my sin is so deep And my heart is so defiled that there's nothing I can do to scrub myself clean. If you tell me that, I agree with you. I believe you. Because faith agrees with God's assessment of the human condition. That's why this woman who had great faith responded, yes, Lord. I agree with you. You just referred to me as being unclean. And I agree with you. You see, this is where salvation begins. Salvation begins with you recognizing you need to be saved. Salvation begins with you recognizing you need to be cleansed. But I don't know how you respond to that. I don't know if you push back against that. Many people do. This is why the gospel is offensive. But the good news about the gospel is that the gospel is equally offensive for all people everywhere. Whether you grow up in the church or you grow up in Christianity or you grow up in another culture like this Syrophoenician woman did, she's as far from the Jewish world and the Jewish customs as she could have possibly gotten, and yet the gospel comes to her in this way. The gospel is equally offensive to all people everywhere because the gospel begins with, you need help, you need a Savior. The gospel begins with, I need help, I need a Savior. This is why Jesus would say earlier in Mark chapter 4, That he did not come for the righteous, he came for the sick and the needy. He came not to redeem those who do not need a Savior, but those who do. This is why we say over and over and over again in our community that the biggest obstacle to your salvation isn't your sin, it's your self righteousness. It's not your sin that's gonna threaten your salvation. It's your self-righteousness. It's you not thinking you need a savior to come to you from outside of you. It's thinking that you can scrub yourself clean. It's thinking that there is a righteousness in you that is worthy of a holy God. There isn't. And faith, saving faith, starts with realizing that. But saving faith doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't encourage us to to stop with this depraved picture of humanity. It doesn't say, you're a sinner, deal with it. The gospel gives hope. This is why the woman in her response to Jesus keeps going. She says, yes, Lord, I agree with your assessment of me, but I'm not going to push back. I'm going to press into this. And so she would say later that faith affirms then the surplus of God's redeeming grace. Forgive me. You and the earth's love, Father of Lord. please forgive me. He goes on to say, she goes on to say, yes, Lord, but then listen to what she says. This is the affirmation. She says, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Do you see her move? Yes, I agree with you. I'm unclean. I'm not a part of the covenant. I'm not a part of your people. I agree with you. That is true about me. But surely there's enough grace in you that can spill over and affect me even though I'm not a part of Israel. And this is where you begin to see twofold faith faith coming full circle yes agreeing with our God's assessment of us our fallen condition but then faith affirms the surplus of God's redeeming grace in other words yes God you're right about me but I'm looking at Jesus and he's right about you because Jesus tells me that you God are full of grace you God are full of mercy you God are generous there is more grace in you than there is sin in me this is what's going down here and that's great faith That is saving faith, uh, agreeing with God, and then affirming the surplus of God's redeeming grace. Jesus was right about God. This is what he's communicating in this moment. It says a guy by the name of Richard Sibbs put it one day. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. That's saving faith. This is why you and I do not have to be afraid of God's assessment of us. If the Bible tells you you're a sinner, you don't have to fear that unless you ignore that. But if you hear that and you press into the salvation God provides in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you can be cleansed of all of your sin, entirely and eternally forgiven. That's the gospel. The surplus of God's redeeming grace, that is where hope is found. And this is so counterintuitive to our instincts because we live in a culture where we want to approach God and appeal to what our culture tells us are inalienable rights. We're say, well, God, you should treat me like this because of this inalienable right within me, but that's not what this woman does. She doesn't appeal to any inalienable right within her. What she does in this moment Is what we do in our faith as followers of Jesus. We do not appeal to our inalienable rights, we appeal to God's inalienable character. Dwelling within God are the inalienable attributes of grace and mercy, of love and justice, of holiness and kindness and patience. So when we come to God in any setting, we do not appeal to Him to treat us well based on our goodness based on our worthiness, based on our warrants. Anytime we come to God in any setting, any capacity, we appeal to his grace, his mercy, his character. This is why all throughout the Bible you hear the writer saying, for your namesake, God, will you do this? For your namesake, will you save? For your namesake, will you forgive? For your namesake, will you intervene? That phrase, for your namesake, is an is uh, it appeals to the character of God saying, because you are who you are, do this. This is what we do as followers of Christ. As those who are now inside, we are a part of the kingdom of God. What sets us apart from other people isn't a superiority thing, What sets us apart from other people has nothing to do with what's outside of us. It doesn't really have much to do with our morality and our personal practical holiness. What sets us apart from the people around us is the faith we are exercising in the surplus of God's grace recognizing that if God does anything good in us and anything God for us, it's all coming back to him because it is a testimony of his grace and his goodness towards me. It's not a testimony of my goodness or my morality or my righteousness. Everything then comes back to God. That's what faith recognizes. That's great faith. Great faith is an emphatically God-centered faith saying God is the center of everything and if there's any good in me that good is growing because of God's grace towards me if there's any forgiveness in me it's a forgiveness that is growing because of God's grace towards me that's great faith and as you consider that and you think about this moment as we kind of bring this down to a close there is a there is an instance where you see this woman crossing culture, transcending her cultural identity in order to meet Jesus and to see his, and to seek his help. It reminds me of a scene that happened in New Orleans. I lived in New Orleans for a few years, and if you know anything about the city of New Orleans, it's a city that's beneath, below sea level, and the whole city is surrounded by, or uh, there are levees that kind of hold back the waters, and Back in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina flooded the streets of New Orleans and just wrecked the city, it happened because one of the levees broke and then all the the water flooded into the city just covering everything and destroying everything. The pressure of the wind and the rain was so much it broke the levee and the streets, the city flooded. Now if I could just put a positive spin on that tragic image for an instant, for, for a moment. I'm wondering how many of us have a cultural identity that serves as a type of levy holding God's grace at bay. I wonder if there's some aspect of our cultural identity that we're clinging to so strongly and we are depending upon for our ultimate definition in this world that it's serving as a levy holding God's grace at bay. This was my mother-in-law for a while. She grew up in Vietnam. She is Vietnamese, and she didn't move over here until she was in her mid-20s. When she first came in contact with Christianity, she drew the conclusion, no, Christianity is American. I'm Vietnamese. I'm Buddhist. It was a cultural distinction, and she would not put her faith in Jesus because she viewed it as a cultural thing, and it, her cultural identity as a Vietnamese Buddhist woman was so strong, it was a levy holding back, God's, holding God's grace at bay. But the more she was exposed to the gospel and the more she began to hear about Jesus this Jewish Messiah the more she learned about him eventually the story of his life and his death and his resurrection broke down the levee and a hurricane of grace flooded her soul cleansing her life renewing and redeeming her but it could only happen once her cultural identity took a backseat to her ultimate identity and I think this is significant because some of you, perhaps, are not following Jesus because you're more committed to your cultural identity than to your kingdom identity. You say things, well, like, I can't be a part of the kingdom, or, or what, what's, what's most important about me is the fact that I am... Democrat or Republican, male or female, what is most important about me is some cultural identity or ethnic uh, identity. And Jesus is saying to you, no, what's most important about you has nothing to do with your cultural identity, your ethnic identity. What's most important about you is the kingdom identity I give to you. This kingdom identity that comes to you when the grace of God floods your soul like the waters flood the streets of New Orleans. But part of repentance for you means to allow the levy of your cultural identity to lower, maybe even break up altogether. That doesn't mean that who you are as an Asian American or who you are as an African American or who you are as a Caucasian American or who you are as a a male or a female, it doesn't mean that those things become unimportant. It just means they are put in the right position of your life. They are no longer the defining attribute of your identity. And the reason why that's important is because if your cultural identity is what ultimately defines you, you will never be able to step into as deeply into the body of Christ as Jesus wants you to. There will always be a barrier separating you from your brother and your sister in Christ. It is our kingdom identity that we hold in common. It is our kingdom identity that drives us into a relationship with one another that, yes, transcends and runs far deeper than our cultural identities and our cultural affinities. So I encourage you. I challenge you. Allow the grace of the gospel to tear down whatever levy of a cultural identity you have keeping God's grace at bay. Let it flood your soul. Let God's grace cleanse you. Let it redeem you. Let it change you. And find yourself a part of a community of insiders, of people who are viewing Jesus and his kingdom and the world from inside the kingdom, standing shoulder to shoulder with one another, loving one another in a way that makes the world stand up and take notice, saying, look, that's, that's a strange community because none of those people look alike. That's a strange community because none of those people really dress alike. But then we discover what's most important about us isn't what's outside of us, it's what we share in common in Christ. I think this story is a preview of that entire dynamic of the kingdom of God. Which is why at the end of the gospel, Jesus would tell his disciples after he is resurrected, now go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How audacious it seems for a group of Jewish predominantly men, to go into other cultures and to teach them about the gospel. Well, the only way they're able to do that is because they have been gripped by this, this reality. And you and I carry the same reality in our lives here in Seattle. You and I respect one another's cultural identities, but we do not idolize them. We do not elevate them above our kingdom identity. And once we get there as a people, we'll be able to showcase the gospel to the city of Seattle in a way that will change the world. Love will flow. Grace will abound. Humility will be present. Racism will die. The battle of the sexes will end. But it only starts when we get here and we begin to affirm together in our faith, agreeing with what God says about us, but then also agreeing about who God is for us in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would make this picture a reality for each and every one of us now. I pray that we would find ourselves united in the body of Christ, a diverse people, a beautiful swath of humanity, a multicolored display of your kingdom here in this city, and I pray, God, that The relationships we share with one another in Christ, I pray that those relationships will be deep, that they will be meaningful, and that ultimately our kingdom identity will transcend and eclipse any other definition that we might want to cling to as we walk through this life. God, we ask and we pray for you to make this a reality for us, that you would take us deeper into this reality, all in Jesus' name, amen.